In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this is our third message in Holy Communion. Not what is it, what is the bread and the cup, like what happens to it, does it change, does it, like, those discussions don't interest me, to be honest. It's fun to talk to people that are, like, really serious about it, but it's uh, more important that we understand why it's here and what does communion do for the Christian. Not what does the priest or the pastor do to the bread, it's what does the bread do to us. Remember, that's what we're after. So we're actually looking through the scriptures to see what they have to say about what Jesus gave to us as a meal, bread and the cup. And so that's what we're looking at. Um, We will start in Exodus 16 tonight um, because Jesus claims that he is the new manna and came to give us new manna. That's what we will be looking at tonight. So I have up here two words consuming minus communing equals what? One of the things we need to understand is that when we reduce life to the material world, it has no more meaning. When God created everything, he infused the physical world with the spiritual world. It's as if he made creation as a container to hold his glory and his presence so that humans can interact with it. But we, in our sin and fall, we're really good at taking the container of creation and pouring out its contents so that we're left with this hollow shell of materialism. When we empty the world of its spiritual reality, we are left without meaning. So, consuming the world, which God gave us to consume. When God made us, he said, eat of all the trees. Just don't eat of this one. But consume the world. I've given it to you to feed you. But when we do this and we subtract the concept of there is a God who gave us this world, there is a spiritual reality in the physical reality, when we drain it of that, when we subtract communing with God, then what we're left with is not saying, oh, your world is beautiful. We're actually grab this, take God out of it, and then we say, that wasn't very good. That wasn't enough. I need more. So yeah, somebody said death. That's a great answer. But more practical, how you experience this death is one of the ugliest things that we do. Grumbling. That's what happens. And that's what the human race has been since we decided to separate God from his material world. And we're left with this emptiness, and we grumble about it because it's never enough. And brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves grumbling, be careful. It's because we have embraced life, not even embraced, we've grabbed life, and we forgot to see what God is doing in it. And that will always leave you frustrated. And that's where grumbling comes from. The opposite of grumbling is giving thanks. Now, how do we give thanks? It is when we take earth, my family, food, our jobs, our church, our friendships, our health. When we take earth, And we give it to God in thanks. 
we infuse, we re-infuse it with heaven. That's what the practice of giving thanks does, is it puts the spiritual back into the physical so that we can commune with God in what we do. So earth infused with heaven equals thanksgiving. So we're going to see how this applies to the people of God in Exodus 16. So what happens in Exodus 16 is they had just seen their miraculous deliverance from the Red Sea. And before that, they had seen their miraculous deliverance from the angel of death and their release from Egypt. These are incredible things. They were dead. They were slaves. But God intervenes. He rescues them with a mighty hand outstretched arm. For he is good and his mercy endures forever, as Psalm 136 says. And he leads them to the Red Sea. Oh no, we're stuck. He parts it for them, which is what Christ has done for us on the cross, as he's parted away for us. And then he takes them into the wilderness. And then they're out there and they're like, we got nothing to eat. And so what does God do? On the way from redeeming them from their slavery to taking them to this land of promise where he will provide for them and they will build his kingdom on earth, from there to there, from slavery to reigning, he feeds them on the way with manna. So Exodus 16, we see what happens. They start off with grumbling and complaining. And then in verse 4, we get the answer. Um, it says, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven. He didn't say, I'm just going to create bread from the earth for them. This bread is coming down from heaven. This is not just make our stomachs feel less grumbly on the way. This is let us feed body and soul on the way. This is bread from heaven. Um, and they shall go out and gather every day's portion that I may test them to see whether they walk in my law or not. He gives them more directions about how to gather it. Um, and then in verse 8, we, at the bottom we see, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then um, it just goes through some of the instructions. Um, now, in verse 14, we see the manna itself. And when the dew had gone up, um, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Which in the Hebrew is just the word manna. No, they didn't name it bread because it wasn't like any bread they'd seen before. They looked at it and said, this is unearthly. What is it? This surpasses our expectations. It is beyond our understanding. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather each one of you as much as he can eat. Okay. So what we see here at the beginning is that God gives Israel manna to sustain them in the wilderness. There's three important truths about this manna that we see. 
The first is that this manna is miraculous. God says, I will give it to you. He didn't tell them to go and and reap from crops that were around them. It came from him out of nowhere. He says, I will make this happen. I will rain bread from heaven for you. So we need to understand that the manna was not a trick from Moses. It was not some natural consequence of the wilderness and the dew. No, it came from God. So the first thing is that they ate miraculous food. Second, they eat heavenly food. Um, You have to jump up to verse 32 and 30 through 34. So after he explains the food and there's some scenarios where they don't quite obey God, we get more instruction about the manna. In verse 32, Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I feed you in the wilderness when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in the jar and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. So when Israel builds their tabernacle and then their temple, What this jar of manna did is they put it in the temple, but not just in the temple. Do you know where? Mm -hmm. Beyond the veil, into the Holy of Holies, and into the Ark of the Covenant, which was considered the throne seat of God on earth. So the manna was placed there in God's earthly throne. The Holy of Holies was considered where heaven and earth touched and united. The manna was bread from heaven. The manna was put back in heaven and there on earth. It was to remind Israel where the manna came from. It came from God himself. And so we put it there to remind ourselves. Also notice notice that the manna apparently is going to keep forever. All generations shall see this jar and remember. So it's not going to spoil. This manna is going to, in the presence of God, live forever. Imagine what it does if you eat it in the... Actually, that, that, that's something to remember, is that in um, Revelation chapter 2, I think it's the church to Pergamum, God tells them, he who overcomes, I will give to eat of the secret manna stored in heaven. So the manna being put in the Holy of Holies reminded them where it came from. It came from heaven. It's heavenly bread. We saw in verse 4, I will rain down bread from heaven. And in case we don't quite understand this, because I confess, I kind of missed this all the years of my life, that it is bread from heaven. Uh, Psalm 78, uh, you may want to either listen or if you're good with the Psalms, you can go check out a couple of these real quick. But in Psalm 78, we get this nice little commentary about the manna. Um, First of all, it says that Israel was complaining, blah, blah. And then in Psalm 78, verse 23, God commanded, yet despite their inability to believe in him, God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and he gave them the grain of heaven. So if heaven was reaping grain and baking bread. This is what it came down as. Uh, Verse 24. 
And he rained down on them manna. That's what I said. Verse 25. Man ate the bread of angels. And he sent them food in abundance. The bread of angels. What do these divine beings feed on? Manna. This is the bread of angels given to humanity. It's more than physical food. This is more like Eden. When um, you would have had the spiritual and the physical infused together. Food that did more than go through your body and come out your body. Um, uh, just to reiterate, Psalm 105, um, I think it's verse 40, says that he gave them bread from heaven. Uh, Nehemiah 9 verse 15, Nehemiah also there in his sermon says, God gave them bread from heaven. Over and over, manna is not mentioned without being a reference to, it is a heavenly source of food from God himself. So that's, that's what we're seeing. The manna is miraculous. The manna is heavenly. And finally, the manna is a foretaste. The manna is a foretaste of what is to come. If you look at Exodus 16, verse 35, the last verse we see, second to last verse, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan the promised land. So the manna was only there until they got to the promised land. Joshua 5 shows us that when they got to the promised land, the manna stopped raining down from heaven and they ate from the fruit of the land. So the manna was only there to sustain them until they reached their destination. Do you hear? Okay. It's miraculous. It's heavenly. It's a foretaste of the world to come. Where are we to end up? We're to end up with God in his presence. The manna now is for sustaining us to that time when we don't need the manna anymore because we have God himself. That's what the promised land figured. They have the land itself. They don't need the manna anymore. Okay, so we are assuming, aren't we, that this manna is also for the Christian. We don't have to assume that because Jesus says that. So we looked at what the original man is. Now we're going to jump up to Jesus. So we're going to be in three passages. We're going to be in Matthew 14 and John 6. But the third one, you know pretty well, so you don't even need to turn there if you don't want, but it'll be the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to start with the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at then at Matthew 14 and then John 6. Okay, but starting with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Matthew, Mark, there we go. Now, you might remember um, that Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And to hallow is actually to infuse. Uh, think of taking the spiritual out of the physical, you make it hollow. To hallow is to put these things back together. We want God to be substantial, not hollowed out. So to hallow is to Put the glory where it belongs. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the reinfusion of earth and heaven. We want to see your glory here. We want to see your kingdom here. We want to see your ways being accomplished here. And as I pray this Lord's Prayer, I am praying that this starts with 
the one thing I can control, myself. Lord, let me not just be a material person, but a spiritual person too, full of your spirit and your glory. How do we accomplish this? The rest of the prayer gives us three steps. We ask him for daily bread. We ask him for forgiveness so that we can then heal relationships around us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we ask him to deliver us from temptation. Strengthen me not to succumb to the evil one. But the first thing he asks us to pray for is daily bread. How do we infuse the world around us with heaven? How do we infuse our lives with heaven? We pray for daily manna. Is that a jump to say? Well, perhaps, but let's frame this a little bit here. First, it was well, we talked about this, I think, in our first message on communion, that the Jews anticipated a new Moses to come to lead a new exodus at the new Passover. All that these things would coincide at once. A new leader to give us new liberation on Passover itself. Now, part of this meant the same thing that happened in the first Exodus. That the, this Moses would give him a new temple and that there would be new manna. One of the things we know the Jews wrote about was they expected manna to return when the Messiah came. So, if Jesus is the Messiah, the Jews are expecting him to give them manna. One of the things Jesus teaches them to pray for is pray for daily bread. Manna was daily bread. Give us daily bread. But shall we go a little further? The, the phrase, if you noticed, um, give us this day, this day, and then he tells us to pray for daily. Isn't that kind of redundant? You could say, give us this day our bread. But instead we say, give us this day our daily bread. The redundancy throws translators for a loop. The footnote in your Bibles, depending on your translation, might tell you alternative ways to translate it. And some are, give us today tomorrow's bread. It's because the Greek word behind this word daily is actually enigmatic. We're not sure what it means. Because it's the only place in Greek that it occurs. It's what you call a, well, there's a technical term, which I forget, but it's a new word. And the Bible's actually very, uh, Christianity itself is actually full of invented words. I don't know if you know this, but we invented a lot of Greek words because there was no way to describe what was happening. And this is one of them, an invented word, and it's worth going through so that you understand. Now, uh, this day is simply a Greek word, Himera, and it's easy to translate because it's all over the Bible. It means today. Give us this day. Uh, but... This other word for daily is, uh, it's a compound word, epiousia, epiousia. So because it's the only place that it's used, it's hard to know exactly how to translate it because you have no way to compare it. Um, so translators take good guesses. They say, okay, this seems to be what Jesus is saying. Um, but one alternative way to translate it is to just take the word literally, literally. What does this compound word mean? Well, epi, uh, any Greek, introductory Greek student knows what epi means. It means to come upon or to come from above. It means upon or above. Uh, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will epi. Um, so that's what epi means, um, above or upon. And then usia, 
those of you who um, do deep reads into like the Trinity, you'll know that the, one of the Greek words for describing the the um, the nature or the substance or the being of God is usia. He has an usia that is not like the human usia, the human nature. There's a divine nature and a human nature. That's what usia is. It's nature. So if we take these two words together, uh, we can propose another meaning. It's that it means um, above nature. Give us this day our uh, hamera, our epiusia. Give us this day our above nature bread. Now, if the Jews are anticipating new manna to come, and if Jesus is going to give new manna, because he's the Messiah, he's the new Moses, um, then it's possible that Jesus is teaching us to pray for our supernatural bread, or bread from heaven, as manna was. So, we then jump to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, we get sort of this fuzzy picture starts to get clearer, and it's going to get even clearer as we go. So, Matthew 14 It's the famous feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle that shows up in all four Gospels. John usually has his own set of stories to tell. So when John records it, everyone's like, whoa, this is a big deal. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a big deal. And here's why. This is a story about the people of God in the wilderness. And Jesus is Moses. They're hungry. There's nothing to eat in this wilderness. Jesus makes bread rain down from heaven. He multiplies bread. As the Jews in the wilderness had their fill, so the Jews here are going to eat more than enough, and there's going to be leftovers. So um, let's highlight parts of this. Verse 13. It's Matthew 14, 13. Now, when Jesus heard that John had died, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. That word desolate is the same word in this in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible for wilderness. So Matthew is intentionally linking these words for so the reader thinks, oh, they're in the wilderness. Um, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when evening came, the disciples came to him and said, this is a wilderness. This is the wilderness. It's a desolate place. And the day is now over. So send the crowds away to go in the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, it's impossible in a sense. Uh, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he does a miracle. Manna is miraculous. Manna is from heaven. Manna is a foretaste of the world to come. Jesus is going to do this for them here. So it says in verse 19, He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, which makes you think of the Lord's, uh, not the Lord's prayer, the uh, good shepherd, Psalm 23. He leads me in green pastures. And then what's at the end of all this story of the shepherd? The table that is set for us. Um, He sets them on in green grass. And then note there's four verbs here. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. 
So he takes the loaves, he blesses the loaves, and then he broke the loaves, and he gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and there were leftovers. So we see uh, this is a... It's, it's, it's reframing the exodus and the wilderness and the manna, except now Jesus is the one providing, not Moses. Jesus is the one bringing the heavenly bread to them. Now, these four verbs that Luke or Matthew uses here are very interesting because it says that Jesus takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives the bread. This is the exact same pattern, the same Greek verbs that are used at the Last Supper in Matthew 26. He took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, that's not at all a coincidence in my mind that Matthew is trying to show us Jesus is teaching the disciples how to lead the crowd into worshiping Christ. And then he does it with them at the Last Supper. It gets even stronger when you consider that Mark uses the same four verbs in the feeding of the 5,000 Last Supper, and Luke uses the same four verbs in the feeding of the 5,000 and the Lord's Supper, and Luke adds one more. On the road to Emmaus, when the two disciples are talking to Jesus but don't recognize him, it then says they went in for supper. It says he took bread, broke it, blessed it, and gave it to them. And then they knew him. So this is really interesting how the gospel writers are describing the uh, concept of bread and these four verbs. And so in the feeding of the 5,000, not only do we have echoes of the wilderness and manna, but we have this prelude to what's going to happen when Jesus gives us bread to eat um, for communion. Now we can go to, oh, don't miss also, because we'll, we'll circle back to it. But after he gives it to the disciples, the disciples do what? Give it to the crowds. So there's a purpose in our receiving communion, which we will circle back to. Okay, so finally, John 6. John chapter 6. Uh, this is as clear as day. The hints we've seen become manifestly clear in John 6. Um, John 6 begins with the feeding of the 5,000. For the record, he does not use the four verbs that we just looked at, nor does he, though, have the Last Supper story. So John is doing this in a different way. He connects the feeding of the 5,000 with Jesus' sermon, I am the bread of life. And this is the most intentional connection we have yet. So let's look at parts of this. Uh, John 6, verse 25. So after he fed the 5,000, it said he, he hid himself because they wanted to make him king. They recognize that he's Moses and this is the new manna. So they know what's happening. Jesus hides himself. And then he goes across the sea and he's in a synagogue. They find him there in the synagogue. And now this whole dialogue begins. So in verse 25, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
That word life in the Greek is zoe. 32 times it appears in John's gospel, of which 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 of them appear in this chapter. Zoe is the life of God. Bios is the life of the human being that breaks down and dies. So the life that we're given is the life of God. Okay? So that's what he's saying. So labor for the food that endures to eternal divine life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You said labor for this bread, so what must we do? Jesus answers, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Then they give him an example. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what's your sign, Jesus? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives. Notice Moses gave. Now my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives Zoe life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. What's he saying? He is saying not yet in these exact words, but he is highly alluding to the fact. Bread came down from heaven and fed Israel. I have come down from heaven and will feed the world. And this will be for eternal life. So they want this bread. Jesus answers and says to them, I am the bread of Zoe life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now he goes on and says that um, he's going to raise up the dead at the end. But the Jews have our time with this in verse 41. Notice what they do. So the Jews grumbled. They're doing what the Israelites did in the wilderness. Now, we saw them grumbling in Exodus 16 before they got food, but we know that they grumble after a while. They kind of get tired of manna. So Numbers 11 says that they grumbled about the manna. So here John is making the connection. The Jews of Jesus' time are repeating the patterns of the Jews in the Old Testament. Jesus says, Better manna is here. And they say, yeah, right. We've done this before. They grumbled. Um, so the Jews grumbled about in verse 41 because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? What are they doing? They are draining the spiritual from the material. All they can see is consuming the worldly things. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? 
Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal Zoe life. I am the bread of Zoe life. Your fathers ate the manna, and he's going to get very direct here. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the, and the bread that I give for, excuse me, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, they are going to take this real well, aren't they? So the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no Zoe life in you. Whoever feeds on the flesh and drinks my blood has eternal Zoe life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus taught these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He makes it very clear that this is new manna. It's a different type of manna. Well, give us this bread, he says. And then he says, I am the bread of life. And then it gets even more clear of them. says, you must eat me. And they think, this is bonkers, right? Um, you and I, we, we feel the same tension. Like, what do you mean, Jesus? This is bonkers. Um, but Notice that he told them in verse 29, the work of God is that you believe. Okay, they're not believing him is the problem. So what do they do? They grumble. Then in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. See how conscious John is of what he's writing? He's letting us know, I understand this is hard. So he's, he's helping us to see how the people reacted too. This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if I were to, then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and Zoe life. But there are some of you who do not believe. The issue in this passage is not that they misunderstand Jesus. It's very clear they fully understand him, and they kind of wish that they didn't understand him. The issue is that they don't believe him, and so they grumble against him. The issue is that they can't believe that there is a spiritual aspect and a physical aspect to the new manna. 
They cannot believe because, well, when you're a grumbler, you're used to separating God and putting him here and the worldly life and putting it here. And then it's never enough. God's never enough because he's he, he doesn't do anything in real life. And the world's not enough because it doesn't satisfy us. And we live grumbling lives and we disbelieve that let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We disbelieve the Christian life we've been called to. So what we see so far is that God gave miraculous heavenly bread, which was a foretaste of the world to come to Israel in the wilderness. Jesus tells us to pray for maybe manna. He feeds the people with maybe manna. And then he identifies himself very specifically with manna. I am the manna. You must eat from me. Or more directly saying you must eat me. Okay, so what do we do with all of that? I told you, I'm just going to show you what the Bible says. So that's what it says. That's what we do with it. That's what the Bible says. Um, Remember, this is where, now this is where I think the discussion gets a little disinteresting. People start to say, oh, okay. So then the bread that Jesus told us to eat, it must literally become Jesus. Or he must be somehow present in it, above it, beneath it, around it. I can't remember how the... Episcopalians say it, Lutherans, but yeah, uh, there's different ways to describe it. Like, uh, that's not super interesting to me because to be honest, if someone in this room believed that I did hocus pocus and turned it into Jesus, I would be a little troubled at their beliefs and my powers, but um, I don't see them as less Christian. I don't. This is not a salvific issue. If someone believes that our breaking the bread is is powerful because Christ comes among the people who break bread together? And and that's the way you see it? Great. Um, You're a Christian like me. And if we see it as simple, physical bread that helps us to remember what Jesus did, uh, great. That doesn't diminish your Christianity. We're, We're all saved by grace through Christ, not by our views of the bread and the cup. Right? So... Um, I'm more interested in what does Jesus want us to do? He tells us that in some way we are eating him. I think we get maybe a little bit too materialistic when we say that the bread becomes him. It's almost focusing on the wrong aspect. Um, We also get super materialistic when we say it's just bread and it just reminds us of what he did on the cross. There is a spiritual element here and somehow the two are infused. You define that your way. But there is an Edenic meal that Christ, remember our first message looked at the tree of life and these other meals through the Bible. There is an Edenic quality to the meal that Christ gives us and it's here. And he tells us to worship him by sharing a meal. Now, the thing that we must remember is not, huh, you have Christians hyper-focusing on, what do we do with this? Like, this isn't the point. This isn't the point. Do you understand? This bread and the cup underneath it, this is not the point. Jesus told us this isn't the point. And yet we fixated on this as if it's the point. What did he say the point was? If you look at verse 35, not 35, that's the other one. Um, Verse 51. And the bread that I will give... Fixate on that. 
No. And the bread that I give, I give for the life of the world. So what's the point? So we're going to soon gather at God's table as a family, and we are going to eat his gift of the true manna, the new manna. It is miraculous, it's heavenly, and it's a foretaste of the world to come. Somehow, some way, Christ nourishes us through communion. But talking about what this is is not the point. The point is that this is for the life of the world. Okay, so when Randy and Michael and Frank come forward and they eat the bread and drink the cup, why are they doing this? For the life of the world. How does that work? Here's how that works. We are grumblers. And I don't think any of us went through this last week without grumbling. I promise you I didn't. I'm going to just basically say, you all grumbled and you all sinned. I'm just assuming it because I hear what some of you say about me. So <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, grumbling. But giving thanks is where it's at. This is how we're supposed to receive life. The things God throws at us. The things that are in the world. God gives us the world to nourish us. But what we do is we just grab it and we hold on to it. We are meant to receive it and to give thanks to him for it. So what did Jesus do with the five loaves and the fish? What did he do with the bread and the cup at the Last Supper? What did he do with these? It says that he took, he blessed. And specifically in, in the feeding five loaves, he looked up to heaven. So this is the motion that we have. We receive what God gives us, but then we give it back to the giver. That's thanksgiving. This is where the material is now infused with the spiritual because we are receiving it and we're recognizing that God is in all places, filling all things, and wants to commune with us in our bad days, in our good days, through bread, through discussions and conversations and coffee talks at coffee houses. He wants to infuse heaven and earth with his presence. And it is the goal of the Christian to learn how to receive the world, to give it to God so that we can fill his presence everywhere that we go for the life of the world. Why then do we, why has he commanded that we take the bread and the cup? It's so that we in the context of church in a very clear setting can be reminded that in something as small as bread and juice, we can see, God, you gave us this grain from the earth. You gave us this juice from the vine and we thank you for it. So that then in the giving it to him and saying, God, here is, we are feeble, meek people. You gave us food. We're giving you food back to say, thank you for saving us. It's our offering to you. It's an offering of our lives to you. And then what does he do? He gives it back to us because now it's infused. His life is infused with our lives because we've given ourselves up to him. And this is how this small little reminder is a little microcosmic practice that we do weekly to remind ourselves that everything we go into the world and take and receive and that comes our way is to be offered up and blessed to God in thanksgiving so that he can fill it and that we can have communion with him in all places and we can bring the world into communion with him. And when I do that, 
which is a pretty, when I think through my week, that's a pretty lofty calling. But when we do that as a people, we bring life to the world. We practice with bread and cup because it reminds us that Christ came into human flesh to fill earth with heaven. And so then we mimic this so that we can be trained to go out and do this in the world. Brothers and sisters, why do we gather every Sunday? It's for the life of the world. Yes, you need your Jesus fix. I need it too. I need this encouragement I get from worshiping with others. I need that. But we do this for the life of the world. We sing for the life of the world. We confess our sins for the life of the world. We pray Psalms Sunday after Sunday for the life of the world. We open scripture and teach it for the life of the world. We pray, which we're about to do, for the life of the world. We receive communion for the life of the world. Understand that every Sunday we gather, we know what's coming. All of this is to bring us to the moment when we receive bread and the cup to remind us that this is for the life of the world. He gave himself to us for our life. We receive him and give him to others for the life of the world. Remember what Jesus did with the feeding of the 5,000? He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples. And then they said, yay, we're awesome people. Let's build awesome churches and keep people out. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and instructed the disciples to give it to the crowds for the life of the world. So I want to finish with a little diagram, part of the reason why I brought up a whiteboard. I think this is just easier if you can see it. Um, is, I just, I don't know, I'm a visual learner, so it helps me. Uh, if we imagine a cycle, we have God at the top, and then we have, um, we have bread and cup at the bottom on earth. And then we've got this, this cycle, okay? So God gives this to us, right? I mean, okay, the juice came from wherever Albert bought it, and the bread um, came from my kitchen, right? And then that came from some harvester, and actually Tyler bought me some flour that was stone ground in L.A., so it's pretty fresh flour. Like, okay, we can trace all this stuff, right? But where does all this ultimately come from? Well, God gave us the seed to put in the earth to make wheat, so it all ultimately comes from God. We must recognize that, that we are here. We sing songs with Sandy's talents and the, and, and Michael's almost talents, and I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we, with, um, we, we have, like, because God gave us these gifts. He gave us music. He gave us scripture. He gave us bread and cup. So we recognize that this all came from God. So what we do is we say, thank you. Thanksgiving is to receive and give back. So, yes, the church is still offering um, offerings, but they're not bloody sacrifices like they were in the temple. It's just saying, thank you. We give it back to you because this came from you. And so then what does God do in return? He gives it back. And now what is it? He gives it back as manna. It's the bread from heaven. 
He gave us the material through creation. We crafted it. We offered it to him, and he gives it back now as the bread from heaven. So he gives us manna, and we give him thanks. This is the cycle. And this is the cycle that we are repeating weekly so that then we can go and do this in every context in the world weekly so that we can bring the bread of heaven to people. It's a high calling, brothers and sisters. Communion is not just a little memory of what happened on the cross. Oh, absolutely we remember that. That's not to diminish what Christ did at all. But it is a calling. It is an altar call to come forward. Like when a preacher says, come receive Christ. You are receiving Christ week after week. And you are called for the life of the world. So, by his grace, let's pray that he will make us such.